Well, we're back, baby. Welcome to Much to Discuss, a weekly conversation between the beautiful Parisian Kelly O'Shea. She's not actually Parisian, but more on that <laughs> later. And Steph Swan, that's me, tackling the culture, content, news, and topics we're absorbing this week. And before we start off, we just wanted to call out that our mic quality isn't quite as good as our usual as we recorded on the move without our usual setup. Thanks for bearing with us and hope you enjoyed today's episode. And it's not really this week because we did disappear. And maybe we owe our friends, aka our listeners, an explanation on that. We did always plan to do a hiatus and that is still coming. But you and I are now in the same city. So we decided let's roll out a few more and then we'll actually get to regular programming and be disciplined. Yes. I need you to start off because you have the largest amount of travel and change that has occurred. Do you want to start off by just giving an update on where you've been and kind of what's been happening? Yes. I laugh just because I'm like, well, strap in guys. You'll hear a lot of my voice. This episode. <laughs> no, I think I'm going to try and do an abridged version, which we know is pretty much an impossible task for me. Seven, I packed up our lives finally in New York. It was beautiful, fun, chaotic. You just feel like you were, I guess, like full of regret. It's like you made the wrong choice. It's not too late to call the whole thing off. I think it might be. Are you willing to vacate your apartment for us? No. Have you heard of bunk beds? <laughs> Stepbrothers. <laughs> but yeah, packed up some things, shipped them to Australia. I think, again, I just had so much gratitude for my time there. I made the decision to randomly move to New York in 2018. And a game that you know I love to play is looking at my messages mm -hmm. and just noting all the names in my messages and then thinking about that, like, if I hadn't moved, I wouldn't even know yeah. so many of the people who are now fundamental to my life. And it's a really cool reflection for anyone thinking about making changes. It can be incredibly scary. And it's not that it's not hard. And at least for me in this instance, it was the best decision I could have made. And so I leave New York, loving it, think it'll always be my favorite city and it holding such a huge place in my heart, almost as big as the place in my heart for you, Kel. Yeah, that was really beautiful. And I can't cry again. So that's, <laughs> I'm not going to fully process it, but I am going to say that I don't think you could have said it any better than that. Why, thank you. What else before we left? Oh, I got diagnosed with ADHD. Personally, I think it's just one of those things. Being 30 years old, you have an understanding of who you are, how you operate. As you know, I'm in the school of therapies, amazing. Learn as much as you can about how your brain works. And I thought I'd been doing a pretty good job at that. Lo and behold, another diagnosis hits the deck. I went through the motions of being, I almost heard like the boomer voices in my head around, well, if everyone has ADHD, no one has ADHD. And I think it's become this popularized TikTok. Everyone, is being told they kind of have symptoms of it. Mm -hmm. Obviously, my psychiatrist did the assessment and came up with that evaluation. I am still in that fighting my own inner dialogue. In my head, I feel like just one of those people who's watched like a TikTok and is like, oh, I definitely have ADHD. Mm -hmm. And to be fair, sometimes that's the genesis. Like people are going around with this, particularly women yeah. being undiagnosed and what have you. Being on social media helps them really see something and make them feel seen, heard, understood all for the first time. And I think that's incredible. So yeah, that's a journey. So we'll unfold that one over time. Yeah. I think the hardest part is realizing what are like personality traits versus what is actually the neurodivergence in my brain. Mm -hmm. where there's one stop and the other start. But that is also why I can't tell a short story, I guess, because apparently people with ADHD are like prone to having to do long story long, color the whole world in. 
Yeah. So that one I'll use as an excuse for sure. I mean, I'm proud of you for going in and I can only imagine, I think with your health journey, there has to be some diagnosis fatigue of just when does it end? But I do think and as you know, it's so hard to tune out voices in your head of what you think people will think. But I think as you know, knowledge is power, knowing yourself and how your brain works and how your body works and being able to like make decisions from that viewpoint is only going to power you more. So it's not obviously, it's never exciting to get a diagnosis, but it can be a relief to get a little bit of a reason why. Knowledge is power. Absolutely. And I'm lucky that I can even get in to a psychiatrist and afford to do that and get diagnosed because for a lot of people that might not be a reality. Yeah. And to color it in for those playing at home, the thing Kelly's referring to is I used to be the kind of person that prided myself on not even having like an intolerance to food. Like you didn't have to accommodate me in any way, shape or form. I was kind of like good to go. Yeah. In the last like four years, I have been diagnosed with Hashimoto's hypothyroidism, a very severe case where I have to have medication every day. I have chronic inflammation in my lower intestine. I had to have a bunch of pretty significant tests, MRIs, et cetera, to rule out Crohn's disease. That's kind of an ongoing thing. It's not Crohn's. Great. Now ADHD. And then I'm also going through the process of being assessed for dyslexia. And I started pre-assessment and was told, yeah, it might be highly likely and we're going to need to do further testing. So, you know, we're just grabbing things off the shelf in terms of diagnoses. And I do have PTSD, but that was something from early 20s. So, so you know, I just, my dossier continues to grow, I would say. Yeah. But as with all these things, I think it just helps you really understand you. I will never not find it funny that the reason I even thought about dyslexia was listening to Gwen Stefani on a podcast talk about her own learning to diagnosis. <laughs> so anyway, that's the mental health, I guess, of this podcast. I've yeah. also been traveling, but I'm done on me for now. We can circle back to that. Tell us about you because you're doing some pretty exciting stuff this summer. Yeah, I, I think the last pod we recorded, I was also in Paris, but was very fresh. And so I, I think was you like, were being coy. Yeah, no, that's so true. <laughs> Everything was so new. And I was actually laughing. I was listening to another podcast earlier. It was the toast. And she was like, this has been like the year of yes for me. And I'm just, it's been so great. And it's really put me out of my comfort zone. But honestly, I'm exhausted. I have been doing so much. And I was like, no, literally, I feel like I have been nonstop. And it's been the best time and summer ever. And I feel like it's just unveiled like every emotion, big and small, deeply, deeply happy, thankful moments. I feel like I've really kind of like come into a bunch of moments in my confidence with myself. I feel so comfortable in who I am and how I operate and the company that I keep now more than ever, both in the people that I'm with in Paris and the people that I have in my life at home. And, you know, obviously also I'm just like, I'm eating like a chocolate bar, a croissant and like my, my body wants to shut down, but it's also like, I'm just like riding hi. I'm, ha- I'm, no, I'm obsessed. I'm sitting here with like a Cheshire cat smile because it like emanates from you. The first night we met you for dinner when we got into Paris, even said walking away was like, Kelly's just, I've never seen her looking so self-assured, happy, the best version of herself that I've seen her, which I know we then text you because I was like hundred percent. You're so in your stride of like evolving and growing and you're one of my favorite people as you know, the chemistry from this podcast hopefully indicates. 
I guess for people who aren't in that space and would yeah. like to head there, what are some of the things you reckon you started to do differently that helped get you to where you are now? Yeah, I think honestly, one of the biggest things in general is look at who you look up to the most. You and Seb in my life have been two people that I've really looked up to and just how you walk in the world and confidence that you've had and the friendships that you've kept. And then a couple of my other kind of core friends in my life, I think I turned to when I wasn't feeling quite a hundred percent and just like leaned on my friends, but also started to kind of figure out what do they do in their lives that I feel like I'm missing. Obviously that was an exercise I went through in therapy as well. I kind of felt like I was at a point where there were just some gaps that weren't quite there. And some of them were, I just didn't feel like I had really deep passions where I was spending my time. I started doing ceramics in my free time and you and me decided to actually commit to doing a podcast, which was something we talked about for a while. And I also just knew that it was time for a change from New York for at least a short period of time. And kind of was just like, I have to put myself out there to say yes to things because if you don't let yourself, you just won't see anything new. If you're seeing the same stuff on a regular basis and you're not happy, it's not a switch that's going to go off. It's you have to take these tactical steps to get there. I do think it's once you take the steps and you like put the plays in motion and you start doing things. Once I got to Paris, it honestly got fairly easy just because I don't think was get there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think as you were talking, I was thinking about it's like that adage where it's you can't keep doing the same things and expecting a different outcome. And it sounds like you've been so intentional in the design and just done the work. Oversimplified it. No, that is that's the right simplification. Intention and action and a a bit of patience and like talking through it and reflecting are, I think, a lot of the keys to a happy life. Deciding to do the things that will make you happy. That's way oversimplifying it. And it's obviously a ton of privilege in that. But yeah. No, and I think it's paying attention to how you feel and doing things that make you feel good and saying no to other things. Like I say no to certain social things now when I'm like, you know, going on a big group trip for a weekend with 20 people, that is stressful. I actually don't find that to be a good time and I would not do that anymore. But a few years ago, I would have felt like, oh, well, what if I don't go fear of missing out? That kind of thing. I love that in growing up. I feel like I'm finding more of that in myself. And I definitely see that in you too. Yeah, the social pressure is... And saying no, I'm such a recovering people pleaser, as you know. And like... I don't think I really realized that I was for a long time. Right. And so I've just learned through the years with boundaries and honestly, like how to look out for myself and other people. Like I still obviously very much care for the deep relationships in my life and that will always be something that's present, but. Well, and I heard a really cool quote the other day that it was like, if you're not honest, then you're not emotionally trustworthy. Yeah. So if you're doing things just to please other people, that actually doesn't help create like depth and breadth as much as honest and authentic reactions will, even if it's telling people no or having a hard conversation. Yeah. So I love that because we did actually joke the other night that you're the kind of person that a couple of years ago, had you been like kidnapped, you would have probably thanked them for the lift. (laughs) Yeah, that is so true. When we were talking about if I got kidnapped and I'd be like, you don't need to pick me up. I'd get Stockholm syndrome. Yeah, you'd be Stockholm Syndrome in like 20 minutes. But before that hit in, you might call the police instead of being like, oh, thanks so much for picking me up. Could I get, do you need a drink? I've got a water bottle on my person. (laughs) And I think the alternative path that we talked about for you was that Seb said, if you were kidnapped, they would let you go in 10 minutes. (laughs) Yeah, they would like pay him to take me back. (laughs) 
I feel like my mom used to say a similar thing. They'd be like, you'd be so annoying and so like forthright. And I'd try and do like mental Kung Fu and like, oh, it would be a disaster. This is also going to be a long intro. So I guess strap yourselves in, listen. And hopefully you actually like like these pieces. This format will be more or less what we do ordinarily. But Kelly, you haven't even talked about, give me some of the quick hits of what's been going on in Paris. We've done the emotional journey. I'm here for it. I love it. I think our listeners will love to hear it. Yeah. That's just my two cents. So don't you dare edit it out because I will (laughs) come for you. What else? I know there are a few things I want you to touch on. Yeah. I think what you're alluding to is I've had a number of friends kind of cycling in and out. But at the beginning of our trip, it was myself and then two other of my very close girlfriends from New York. And the three of us very early on in the trip, just were having a discussion about dating and again, putting ourselves out there, whether that be in New York or in Paris. And Steph actually previously had said with her friends in New York that they used to kind of have like a Thursday night, everybody goes on a date. If it goes well, congrats to you. If it goes poorly, meet up for a drink after. And so very much taking inspiration from that, we formed a bit of a competition who can be going out on the most dates, who can be approaching the most people, doing it for the content piece of it. Good time or good story. Yeah, exactly. But as you know, from knowing me, my like bar game is genuinely so, so bad. I don't know what my opening line should be. And so (laughs) I always pick a bizarre question and I go up and ask it. It's normally like a yes or no. And then once they answer, I'm like, okay, thanks. And then I walk away. I will say... Like, it hasn't not been working. I think the language barrier might be helping you in Paris with that stuff. Because you're just cute, fun, friendly. Yeah. Although, when I was in New York, as I started just going up to guys at the bars and asking them how old they were as a conversation starter. What, did you you ID them next? Like, what was but it wasn't not working. Like most of the time they're, they, they're like, oh, you should guess. And then I guess I'm wrong. And then we start a conversation. I'm actually like, okay, asking people how old they are is the pickup line of the future. I, he, okay. I love that you're putting yourself out there. I'm so here for this. It's long awaited as your married friend. <laughs> so I'm thrilled. Secondly, I don't know if we want to say to our listeners that are single and listening, like, hey, this is a surefire win. Yeah, because... If people have good ones, let us know. But it's, yeah. I think it's just starting any conversation is generally good. So if it's how old are you, I think some people might meet you with like a furrow brow being like, what are you IDing me, the bouncer? But true, I think any guy's happy if a woman approaches him in a bar yeah. or in public. The apps have kind of ruined all of that, I feel like. Like back in the day when like people would just be like, what's your number? You should just start with that. Yeah. What if they're just like a total weirdo, I guess, you know? You're not giving them your number. You're getting their number. Then you can chat. Then you can delete it or text them. Oh, that's true. Who's winning? Are you? I'm not. Um, My friend who (laughs) is, my friend who's back in New York is winning by just a complete landslide. And we decided she would, like the competition would continue with her going on dates in New York as well. Oh, Great. All who are interested are welcome to join. In. Actually, yeah. Hit Kelly up on in her dance, both if you would Please. like to date her or if you want to be part of the syndicate. So true. No, this could honestly help me win the competition. So especially if you want to date me. <laughs> yeah. If you like our podcast, give us five stars and also either date Kelly or <laughs> help go on dates and get part of the competition. 
this show is not meant to be about you dating. The last thing about you that is interesting is like who you're dating, to be very clear. But it is just fun and it's hot girl summer just a couple of years later. So true. And I'm loving the friendships and like the camaraderie for me when I was single in New York around the same thing. That's the bit that was the best. Yeah. Um, So I'm here for this. Yeah, I love it. Recognizing that every person you meet is going to be special in one way or the other that's really unique to them is just a good mindset to have while dating and making friends. I love that. Wait, okay, so what's been the best part? The best part, I think, is that Paris is just so beautiful in every way. They're beyond the museum experiences and the food and all of that, which is incredible. It's walking around and looking around the city everywhere you look, the people to the streets themselves is beautifully done. And there's so much history here that I feel like being in that creative of an environment just feels like you have to absorb it. And that's been really lovely. And the company, the people that I'm getting to spend time with here and the friendships I'm having in this city are just elevating it beyond. But back to you, because this is, I need the best part. First of all, you and Seb have now been traveling for a full month or shorter or longer. A bit shorter. Okay. We're three weeks, three weeks in. Three weeks in. How's it going? And same thing on best part or feeling or any of the above. Yeah, it's been incredible. We started in Greece, which is really our designated belated honeymoon part. So we were kind of locked down when we got married. We eloped in the pandemic. I guess we'll unpack that over the journey. So an Easter egg, as the Swifties would call it. Look at me go. <laughs> we started in Kefalonia. Oh, that's really probably not how you say it. It is stunning. It's a Greek island. We stayed in the most magical place. It was an adults-only resort, so no screaming kids. My dream. Love. It had a private beach area. The food was incredible. It was just one of those places where you feel like you have to, like get up and like pinch yourself. And that was the first time Seb and I had been out of like overseas together in a country that's not one of ours because obviously we'd only really done Australia and America otherwise so it was just incredibly special and I would say it exceeded like the honeymoon expectations and then we went to Zakynthos next stunning as well we were in probably a nicer hotel but it felt more like hoity-toity I guess not as much our style as the first place because the first place was really more of like an adult only like retreat and it was just among the mountain and the trees but like down onto the beach it was amazing and then Zakynthos we did a boat day like Greece is stunning I love Greek food give me Saganaki cheese, chicken gyros, and suvlaki every day of the week, which is what happened. Then we were in Italy. So we started in Venice and we went to an architectural biennial. So they do it every couple of years. It was on the laboratory of the future. Venice as a city is just unreal. Nothing like it. Stunning. Treated ourselves to St. Regis. So this was like topping off the honeymoon part. And it was bliss. We were just like, my favorite night there, we were just wandering the streets, like hand in hand, a little tipsy off the wine. And almost that like inexplicable feeling where you just feel kind of a little bit like you're floating. Maybe that's just called being tipsy. I don't know. But that's (laughs) so sweet. I can like pinpoint the feeling. Yeah, it's... It was fun. And then we went into Florence. It's beautiful, but then it got so hot. My goodness. More on that later. But saw one of my oldest, closest friends, her and her husband were there. So we overlapped for a night, did dinner, drinks, had cocktails looking over the Duomo. 
I think the thing that just amazes me about these European cities is like how old and how much history and it's just pretty incredible being from a country like Australia, you being from America. Like there was a cafe we went into in Venice that has been serving coffee. America and Australia didn't exist. This cafe has operated for longer than they've been country. And then we were in Tuscany with one of my nearest and dearest and her amazing partner, the ones that got engaged recently. And it was just a joy, obsessed with them. And then we came here to Paris. Hey, yeah um and i'm missing so much but it's just been a great trip and i feel so grateful to be able to travel i think it means even more to people now that we know what life can look like when you can't do this it's been so fun hearing all the foreign languages being in different cities different cultures so here we are quite a bit to go so that's also fun i love it I'm so excited. If we haven't put you to sleep already <laughs> in the intros, that's great news. Feel free to have fast forwarded through all of that, but it'll be too late now if you're listening to what I'm saying. I will transition us into the real format of the show. So as a reminder, because it has been a minute, we hit pop culture and by we, I mean, Kelly tells me what's going on in pop culture. <laughs> um, we do the deep and news topics next. And then we now have fin- we've decided we should finish up with content based on feedback because we used to do deep news topics and then like say goodbye and people would be left grappling the world so now we do content last so with that being said Kellum, what are you going to give me your french pop culture this time or what are, what do we got i wish i will start you off with a bit of a question abc oh. has a new spinoff of the bachelor that they're doing another one yes can you guess what the spinoff is is it a they, them? Mm. I don't know. what I can't, is that because they do Bachelor, Bachelorette, right? So what would that? Yeah, that would be really beautiful if they did something like that. I didn't even think about but that. But what is the right, because they're gendered, Bachelor it's is a gendered thing, and Bachelorette is also gendered. ABC, listen up. We haven't had that since like Tina Tequila back in the day. Do you remember? Oh, Tequila? Yeah, but wasn't that just the, oh, was she non-binary? I don't know if she was they, non-binary, but she, queer. bi? Yeah, I think so. It was one of those shows I watched and like definitely had to turn off when my parents came home. (laughs) (laughs) It is The Golden Bachelor, which is a bachelor for senior citizens. Oh my God, stop. Yes. And they have revealed Jerry Turner, who is a 71-year-old grandfather from (laughs) India, as the first Golden Bachelor. And he's like, he's kind of hot. Wait, I need to Google him right now. And he's 71. Yeah. But he doesn't look 71, I don't think. Oh, shit. Yeah, he's like. He's not 71. He is. Good for him. Yeah. Wait, how old? Why do I see a photo of him with four women? Those are his grandkids, I think. Oh, <laughs> I, knew his, and his children. I knew where your brain was going. So they announced it, I think, to start recruiting for women to so join like the show. They couldn't have done it. Yeah. Oh, okay, that makes sense. <gasps> I will be tuning in. I'm, I like really think this is what the Bachelor franchise needed. I'm so excited about it. I'm here for this though. Yeah. I think it's like the very traditional bachelors, bachelorettes, like models with six packs and you're like, cool. Anytime we veer slightly into just more ordinary stories, I just couldn't be more obsessed. I am a big sucker for our elderly or senior citizens and them finding connection, community and love. There was this great show on the ABC in Australia where it was, you know, a social experiment of types where they brought like kindergarten kids into retirement homes and they got elderly people and the kinder kids to partner and they would do kinder together. And when I say I cried every episode <laughs> the most heartwarming thing you've ever seen in your life we'll have to link it in the show notes reality tv could have a very 
pure angle that they're missing. Yeah. Oh God, I have to watch this. It's called Old People's Home for Four-Year-Olds. And it is. That's the name. Yeah. I think it could have been a bit shorter, but anyway, that's what it is. You need to watch it. Everyone needs to watch it. I will be watching The Bachelor. What is it? He's still The Bachelor. Oh, The Golden, the golden bachelor. bachelor. Yeah. Like The Golden Years. Golden Girls? Yeah. No. Yeah. Okay. These 60 and 70 year old women having drama, I just think is going to be the funniest thing on earth. Well, because like you got like at that age, you're kind of like, I could give a stuff about impressing anyone around me. I think it's going to yeah. be really funny to see how that goes with being that age will they find enough women who are willing to be like in competition for just one guy or will they be like i'm too old for this shit because the other thing too is like you're eating into the you know golden years so to speak if the season goes too long so true yeah and he is a widow father grandfather and also a retired restaurateur and i feel like he lives like a pretty normal life like his interests were Hosting barbecues, playing pickleball, four-wheeling. Was it four-wheeling? It's an ATV. Oh. I think. I thought it was just driving a car. (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) Well, maybe it is an extreme sport when you're elderly because it's like side. Yeah. Just a kind Midwest man. I want my nan on this. Oh, my goodness. My mum's mum is one of the funniest people on the planet. And my grandfather passed away some years ago now. I'm going to sign her up. What if she gets... She can fly to America. (gasps) Oh. You might have to come with her. And then Margaret. we have to call off the whole Australia thing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. Um, wait, I love that pop culture update. Yeah. Sorry, we went a bit off topic there, but it was very worth it. Yep. So that's that piece. The next piece of pop culture I have for you is there are a lot of celebrity breakups happening right now. Um, Sophia, oh. Ver- Sophia Vergara and Joe Manginello. I don't know how to say wait. that. Manginello. Yeah. They announced their split after seven years of marriage in a joint statement, and he just filed for divorce as well, just citing irreconcilable difference. Oh my gosh, irreconcilable differences, but they have a prenup, so. Okay. They're both so hot. That's a shame. Yeah. And they seemed so in love. Here's the thing, and I know they don't owe us anything, but you're a celebrity, so just tell us. Yeah. Please release an Instagram statement that says more. I just... Yeah, like, what was the moment you knew? Yeah. Like, were you always happy? And did it just change all of a sudden? Or were you was it pretend? Like, I guess money doesn't solve all. Yeah. Or being beautiful? I right. need to understand this better. Because in my head, I'm like, how? It's shocking. You're both so successful. You seem great from, yeah. <laughs> from comedy <laughs> and, and the characters let's say new play wow okay didn't expect that one yeah um, so that, that one and then also ariana grande and dalton gomez who i know you didn't even know that she was married because i told you about this <laughs> earlier tmz reported that they are splitting up after two years of marriage and she's already removed a couple shots of them from her instagram page including their wedding photos and their engagement announcement and has been spotted without her ring at Wimbledon, wow. and then also walking with Cynthia Rebo from Wicked, which she's filming right now. Oh, but wow. I'm pretty devastated. He was like kind of a normie in that he like was like a real estate dude, and okay. you know, being a famous woman and finding love and that being easy. If you really think about social paradigms in general, aren't there multiple studies that prove the more educated, the more successful, the more money a woman earns, the smaller their dating pool gets, and the inverse is true for men. 
True. So if you think about someone like Ariana Grande, even Taylor Swift, your friend, but they're both singers, right? And you're like, I don't know. Unfortunately, I think our deep patriarchal roots, it's just harder for them to partner with someone and not be a successful relationship. Also, yeah. I think being a celebrity seems insane. Uh-huh. Sustaining any kind of relationship seems fraught. That was going to make me ask you, what okay. like famous or well-known couple split would make you be like devastated or like not believe in love? I mean, this isn't going to surprise you. Oh, I was going to say, I really don't have one. If Barack and Michelle Obama got divorced. I knew you were going to say the Obamas. Knew it. Otherwise, I'm kind of like nothing would surprise me on the celebrity front. John Krasinski and Emily Blunt. Do you not know them? I do know them. It's probably going to happen. Let's be real. They're young. There's plenty of years for that to fall apart. Stop it right now. My jaw's on. (laughs) You're just just trying to make me angry. (laughs) Wait, what's is that your answer for the same question? Yeah, for sure. They have a beautiful okay. relationship. I can't even imagine it. <laughs> Any other pop culture for me? Wow, we can really tell we haven't been together because we just really are going off on tangents. So many topics. The last one's just a quick update, but it's very relevant. It's that the SAG and writer strikes continue, and it's getting pretty hard to see how projects are going to press on filming. It's looking like the whole industry has come to a standstill for the first time since 1980, which is crazy. Wow. Notables here, there are a couple of productions that are all on pause, like Wicked, Mission Impossible, Deadpool, and then the cast of Oppenheimer also walked out of the London premiere. Pretty crazy. And it's really just all around proper compensation for streaming and rights as artificial intelligence game scheme. It's so interesting, right? Because I guess this is a demonstration in a particular industry of trying to reshift who stands to earn the most from the profit. And it's a really interesting one. I look forward to seeing how it plays out. There's still a lot of money in all these things, though that being said, there are more participants than ever before. That's part of what streaming has done. And you haven't exactly grown eyeballs. Yes, population across the world grows a little bit, but I don't know how much that has shifted. So my feeling is there's a little bit more money available, but there are far more players involved. And there's obviously the, you know, inherent inequity in kind of some of the CEO salaries that are being talked about getting paid and then you've got the whole production staff that are earning less than they used to as well as actors well thank you for getting up to speed on pop culture anytime um we will hit the heavy news then diving into the deeper news topics and one i kind of alluded to earlier heat waves and china's renewed relationship with coal so i'm going to be touching on a few articles as usual out of the new york times when we talk about deeper news topic i am sure everyone has read and heard about how there are unprecedented heat waves happening across europe and america southern europe is baking thanks to relentless heat waves from temperatures that are breaking records across italy spain and greece and i can tell you i was in italy yeah in Florence, and it was so hot. And I think that one of the things that we talked about even in the openings was how old Europe is. And so there's not the same infrastructure in dealing with heat at these levels. In fact, most homes don't have air conditioning. Mm-hmm. I think it's something like 10% of homes have air conditioning through the southern parts of Europe, as I read it in the article. You know, I think about that from like a tourism perspective, for example, and you're like, yeah, that's going to be really hard to travel this summer. Another headline wrote that for Europe's older population, heat is the new COVID. And that's something to take incredibly seriously. Mm. It's really how the scorching temperatures will really threaten the health of the elderly and really re-isolate them because it pushes them back inside. And so there's a few articles that will link in the show notes, but it's really big. 
And Europe is not alone. The US is expected to have the hottest summer on record. In the headline or the byline of an article within the New York Times, it says most of the United States can expect a summer above normal temperatures, according to the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration seasonal outlook. So it's going to be hot where it is summer. It feels like we hear these headlines all the time. And I have a question for you, Kel. Mm -hmm. When you hear this and you think about your own life, will you start to think about living differently? Yes, 100%. I think it makes a huge difference in one, where you choose to live. And then also even what you're talking about with it threatening older populations and their ability to go outside, like it obviously makes you think about your parents and your grandparents and just makes me wonder with like social design how that's going to work. But yeah, I think it definitely makes, as we've talked about before, like buying a home, deciding whether or not to have children, figuring out where to live. Like I think all the components of my life in the future are impacted by this. What about you? Yeah, I think for sure. As people, you know, worry about even like pay inequality and we talk about all of these other topics. One of the things I'm most concerned about is like how livable this planet's going to be and for how long. And I think we underestimate how drastically it's going to force us to shift our lives. And my feeling is if COVID taught me anything, everything you know can change overnight. A scientist has been warning for a very long time, climate catastrophe will show up in, you know, big, significant, obvious events. But I think this is an example of just the persistent change that is coming in us living in a hotter climate. It really makes me think about geez, what does the next 10 years look like? How do you think about living in a city? I'm buying, I hope to buy a car because unfortunately in Australia, it's quite required in terms of like getting around and being connected in society. But I want to try and get a completely electric car. You've got to do research on that. So, you know, there are things around how I want to live in terms of like having a car to go somewhere or go to get groceries and what have you. Um, also on the side of like, how do I think about my impact? Right. And that's that's where I kind of linked in as I like to do an unrelated article, but that I feel is quite related. And that is around China's renewed relationship with coal. And so I'm just going to read you snippets of this article that jumped out to me. So even before this year, China was emitting almost a third of all energy related greenhouse gases, which is more than the United States, Europe and Japan combined. China burns more coal every year than the rest of the world combined last month. China generated 14% more electricity from coal, its dominant fuel source, than it did in June of 2022. So they're actually year over year using more coal than ever before. And this speaks to China's ability to ramp up its coal usage due to the huge national campaign over the past two years to expand coal mines and build more coal-fired power plants. And In reading through this article, the why behind that is because some years ago, there was kind of a devastating power outage that caused really bad ramifications, death in some instances, explosions, a real lack of warning when they couldn't keep the grid on. And so part of their position is that they always regard the protection of national energy security as the most important mission. And so that is part of why they are doing this. Mm. Obviously, they have a growing population, an emerging economy, all these things are going on. And I mean, it is important to note too that China are leaders in renewable energy as well, which is a weird thing to kind of hold together. Yeah. It is kind of one of those like unfortunate like cyclical patterns where the world is getting warmer and the heat waves are affecting everyone. So then they have to burn more coal to be able to have an energy supply for air conditioning and everything else. 
That's wild. It's an interesting one to watch. And I'm just, there were claims back in 2021 by Xi Jinping that his country would strictly control coal powers projects and the growth of coal consumption. That same year in mid-September, their hot weather overloaded the grid and that's what caused the blackouts, which led to a chemical factory explosion and a bunch of other pieces that were less than desirable. So then they felt like they don't have a choice. Their highest priority is keeping the grid stable. So, and I would say that what I am sensitive to is the fact that in countries like America, Australia, all these countries in kind of late stage capitalism, it feels a little rich to turn around to emerging economies and they insist they develop more responsibly. I can appreciate how that feels unfair to countries like India and China who look to those more developed nations and say, well, you got to build your economies on the back of coal, so why can't we? And I would say that a lot of those countries were doing that knowing more than we kind of say they do. Because I think the easy thing to say is like, oh, well, we didn't know then yeah, how bad it was going to be. Right. I suspect there was some awareness of it, right? Obviously not to the extent that we know sitting here in 2023. But I do just want to acknowledge that that is something that's a bit sticky. Yeah. When we talk about China and emissions around China. I want to state the obvious, though, that I do believe that as humans on planet Earth, we absolutely need every country, every business, every individual to help rebuild systems due to the existential threat of climate change. Yeah. So, yeah, that is the kind of end of that heat waves and China's renewed relationship with coal. So I think we can move into topic two. Enough about the heat waves, how we're contributing to global warming. This one is related to women's rights, specifically in America. So the title of the article is A Europe of Upheaval on Abortion Frontlines. It's written by Kate Kelly and Marissa Swartz-Taylor for the New York Times. And it really looks at what has happened one year post the Roe world, meaning when they their Supreme Court within America overturned the ruling that protected women's rights to abortion. And so this article really outlines organizations that work with women and what it's meant for them in a year of seismic change. I guess, Kelly, I'm curious, what comes to mind for you? Can you believe it's been a year, first of all? No. And we were together the day that the news had broken, that Roe had been overturned. We were. And that day feels like it was yesterday and also 10 years ago. Yeah. I was surprised at how hard that hit me, especially as a non-US citizen, right? Because I can appreciate that I have opportunity to move to the country that I'm a citizen of, which is Australia. So that in the back of your mind is the safeguard, or at least I thought it was. I don't know that that protected me from feeling just shattered. You and I were walking along, going to a friend's birthday of all things, and we were like dragging our feet. It does feel like yesterday. This article, I think, piqued my interest because of that, you know, personal connection with it, which probably any woman listening has that kind of connection to it. And our male listeners likely, hopefully, have a lot of feelings about it too. Because as we know, like any female or male issues are just human issues at the end of the day. Yeah. And so really this article highlighted how the many organizations supporting women and their families are operating differently in the wake of the ruling in areas in America in which this ruling really impacted access to care. It covers stories from volunteer pilots, not-for-profit with mission to support low-income mothers, groups like Indigenous Women Rising, and online pharmacy groups that dispense abortion medicine. So it really details the huge landscape that is healthcare 
for women and their reproductive rights. I would say if this is of interest to you, I would encourage our listeners to read this. It may even give you ideas of how you can support different organizations or people in your own communities if that's something that you feel passionately about. A quote that stood out to me from this article, they interviewed a pilot who had to remain anonymous because there is very big risks legally in helping people gain access to abortions if that state is kind of ruling it illegal at this point. And so this quote was from the pilot himself and he said, I don't like how some of these people have to suffer for this political game. It's tragic. That is kind of what it is in my head. So it just felt important to mention because this is really, I think, an unprecedented, well, in our lifetimes, Kel, being 30 years old, an unprecedented slide back in a what is considered a first world country in the Western world for human rights. I will say, to close out this segment, there is good news coming from a different area in the world, in Australia, my home country, where access to medical abortions is being expanded in Australia through landmark changes approved by the Therapeutic Goods Administration. My fear at the time when this was happening in America is like it sets the tone globally and how will other countries follow in the footsteps. So I think this is great news in terms of Australia, which is closely linked, I would say, to America in terms of cultural references, the awareness of what's happening for Australians in America. Mm. And we've gone the other direction as a country. We can celebrate that one. Good on Oz. It's good to see other countries not kind of following suit, recognizing when things aren't right. I totally agree. And then I wanted to do something new for this one, which is things to watch and Given that we're not actually rhythmically populating our podcast right now, we'll see if we come back to it. But I myself will be reading up on the relationship between China and the US as stoked by an article that I've seen. And I think broadly speaking, coming back to the climate, you know, there are a lot of conversations going on about with world leaders around how we're going to address this crisis. But I saw the headline in the New York Times that said, frustrated by Biden, China courts old friends like Kissinger. So in a meeting with Henry Kissinger, China's leader Xi Jinping is turning to American contacts outside the Biden administration to try and influence Washington's thinking on China. So there's quite a bit going on as normal between these two powerhouses in the world. So that's it for me on the deeper news topics Uh and move into content we've been consuming this week. So this includes articles, shows, movies, podcasts, really anything we're taking in. Given I've been on the move a lot and I've been with someone the whole time, I don't have a lot to offer in this segment today. But Kel, I think you've been wandering the streets of Paris and and taking some things in yourself. So what are some of the things you want to take us through? First one is a podcast rec, but it's a very interesting podcast. I've never listened to anything like it before. The BBC released a podcast called The People Who Knew Me, which was starring Rosamund Pike, who we love from Gone Girl. She stars as a woman who uses 9-11 to fake her own death and disappear to start a new life. It was really interesting because it's an audio drama. So it stars seven different people credited on audio. And they're like pretty fairly well-known actors and actresses. It takes one episode for you to kind of click in to the voices and be like, okay, I'm really tracking with this. And then I was just hooked. It came out every Tuesday and Thursday and was a short episode series. The episodes were like 15 minutes long. It was equivalent, I thought, to watching a really good drama 
on TV, but through an audio medium, the story was really compelling in that way. And I'm somebody that listens to a lot of audiobooks and podcasts. And so I think I just really enjoyed the story and the pace of this. And Rosamund Pike was incredible. And the story is so good. I think you would love it. I will definitely be listening to this. Anything drama, faking your own death, complexities of life, hit me with it. This feels like kind of an audiobook, but I guess on a podcast format. Yeah. And you think about it in audiobooks, you have one reader typically, you don't have multiple. True. The seven voices was that's fun. And then it just made me think like, this is obviously them trying out something new. And I'm sure with getting such high profile actors, that kind of starts to tell you that at least the BBC is starting to think about how do we take advantage of this medium and use it in a different way. Is there any other formats of content or podcasts or things like that that you've seen that you've been really excited about? In terms of format, I mean, I typically like even like the Kim Kardashian narrating of a real life conviction and whether or not that man was rightfully or wrongfully convicted. That was fun for me. But I'm obviously also a kind of true crime junkie. I haven't even heard of that. Is that a podcast? Yeah. I think it was number one in the charts the week it was released. She's actually a fantastic narrator. Anything come up? Not in the podcast world, but I have noticed with short dramas on TV, I think have really taken off where it's a 10 episode hour long a piece series. Yeah. Like anything that kind of is short enough to keep the attention of listeners, I think is catching on pretty quickly. I was going to say, I think it's our short attention spans. And I am definitely guilty of that. I'm the kind of person that's like, oh, a two hour movie couldn't possibly, but 10 episodes of 20 to 40 minutes, I'm in for the whole day. (laughs) Hopefully we see more of these because I I really did enjoy it. So that was recommendation one. The second content recommendation I have for you that I think you're going to be very interested in is I recently read Good for a Girl by Lauren Fleshman. She was an elite collegiate runner and a national champion as a pro runner. And it was an inspiring memoir of her journey and relationship with running. And it also was a manifesto and rallying cry for reform of a sports landscape that's failing young female athletes. And I just felt like every chapter that went on, she would drop a fact and it was very academic. You could tell she just did very deep research on these topics. My brain felt like it was kind of bursting out of my head and I was writing notes rapidly in my little notes app on my phone and was like, I need to talk to Steph about all of these. So I wanted your first reactions because I know obviously you, you know more about sport than I do. And I feel like you know a lot more about female sports as well, but I wanted to just kind of get your your first responses. Yeah, I would say the the first things that jump to mind are really like personal. So I played a lot of sport growing up. I did a bunch when I was younger, like I think most Aussie kids seem to do, and then streamlined into netball. That's a Commonwealth sport for the Americans around N-E-T-B-A-L-L. I'm not saying nipple, which some people have thought I've said in the past. (laughs) And so I was very much like in that system when I was younger. Never like one of the best or anything to that end, but decent enough. And I remember being about 15 years old and mum asked me like, do you want to play for Australia? And I'm pragmatic, as you know, and I looked at her and I said, why would I? There's no money. I'd have to get a full-time job and be a full-time athlete. I'm just going to go into a career to earn money. And there's no Olympics and that's specific because it's a Commonwealth sport. So that's a whole different kettle of fish. But I think I had identified really, really early on that female athletes in general do it for the love of the game and it doesn't help solve the the realities of your financial future. On rare occasions, it will, like if you're the best of the best and even then, nothing comparable to our male counterpart. And so I think as I 
start to hear this more in the mainstream conversation. Even Natalie Portman, you know, she is one of the founding investors in female sport in the US landscape. And she's having, she's using her profile to help have these really important conversations. And I think it's high time we really interrogate why male athletes are some of the wealthiest people in the world. And you'd be hard pressed to name a female athlete in a similar position, you know, and tennis is probably an example of a sport that is doing it the most consistently. And they had to fight for those rights. And and we are getting there slowly. But I do think that this is really deep rooted in kind of the patriarchy and how we subconsciously view male athletes versus female athletes. Yeah. So yeah, I think we absolutely have to dismantle the system. And there's not a really big recognition, even if you're a young female athlete and you come out of the system, it's a really jarring experience. And Mm -hmm. there's little to no recognition of that in the broader world. And maybe that's true for men as well. Um, I've only had that experience myself as a female. But yeah, I have a lot of good friends who are playing for Australia right now or in professional netball who have other jobs on the side. And I'm saying that these people are in the top 40 top 12 in some instances players in australia at what they do and netball is one of the highest participated sport in our country and yet they work to be able to afford to pay their rent and put food on the table they work outside of the sport so yeah a lot of feelings your thought on male athletes making significantly more too was just a theme that she touched on throughout the book. And also she would just kind of mention how people would say male athletes perform better, which biologically would be the case. But she talks about that and it is the differential between men and women is an interesting one that they make when the sports environment that women have been fighting for access to were built by men and for men and for boys. And one of the quotes she had was, our focus has been on getting what men have the way they have it and it's backfiring. We fold and smash women into a male-focused infrastructure, then scratch our heads when the same friction points show up again and again. And I thought that that was a really pertinent point to this whole conversation because not too much has changed. Women are biting tooth and nail in sport. And then everybody's like, you know, we're not going to pay female athletes the same because they're not getting the same amount of people that are showing up. All of those conversations happening, I think are just really interesting when like the fact of the matter is the whole foundation that we're built on wasn't built equally for both men and women. And that point generally was just a big one for me. Yeah, I think the true theme of the now, right, is how do we break down the current systems and either transform or build a new one? And I think that's a really good thought related to female sport because we want to build it for the spectators. We want to garner. And to your point, historically, sport was built for men to play and mostly men to watch. I'm an avid AFL fan. And whenever I used to say that, people would be like, oh, do you even know the teams type team? Like the assumption was that I didn't know what I was talking about. So it is interesting how entrenched that is in our worlds. And I think we do need to look at the systems in place. And I think it's interesting because there's two pieces in my mind. There's how do you get that like equal recognition that female athletes are so deserving of respect, opportunity, strong financial futures, kind of all those pieces. How do you get it to like kind of a level playing field in the existing system? But then how do you go about redesigning a system that better supports athletes broadly, male and female, and Mm -hmm. really uses sport as the magic that it is, which is a really connective tissue in community. Like it brings together so many diverse people, either as players or as spectators. And I think that's an incredibly beautiful part of sport that we need to better leverage and get rid of the stuff that really isn't 
serving our athletes and some interesting sport things i you may have seen the viral video it's a soccer team i think out of europe who made an ad and they used ai to turn the female players into male players and that was the footage that they ran at the start and then they kind of showed that it was actually females doing those plays really to emphasize that like our female soccer players are as good as our male soccer players and we just have a bias that female sport is not up to the level and yeah and the second part in the sporting thing is a good friend of mine actually plays in a professional team in Australia. She's been in that team, I think, for a few years now. And a month ago, they announced that they had to withdraw their license from the team from the competition because it is not profitable. Mm -hmm. And so there is some real big grappling points like females in sport. And I think, you know, you look at Abby Warmback in the US, she was being recognized alongside Kobe Bryant and Peyton Manning. She does this amazing interview where she talks about how the three of them were standing on the stage receiving the same award. And as they were walking off the stage, Kobe and Peyton, Peyton, sorry, not a name I say often, were probably thinking about how do they invest their hundreds of millions of dollars. In. And meanwhile, she was walking off the stage thinking, how am I going to get a job so I can make my rent this month? That hit me like a ton of brick. Do you play sport competitively growing up? Yeah, volleyball for years and then switched into running when I was in high school. And then I was also in track, I guess I was a jumper. So and in this book, too, since she was a professional runner, I noticed a lot of the same themes that I would kind of noticed. And I think I might have mentioned this to you the other day when we were talking, but in the running community, There are certain things, especially for female runners that I just don't think are talked about enough, specifically nutrition for young female athletes and like how you should be eating while you're running as a female. And then also just talking about your body and the physiological changes that are being made to it. The perfect runner and Lauren Fleshman talks about this in her book is this very spindly, tiny girl with long legs who can run really fast because the less weight you have on you, the faster you can go, but it's not sustainable from a health perspective or in your body. Body that you're growing into as a woman, especially as you're going through the changes that you hit when you're in puberty. And nobody really talks about you getting your period as a female runner and how that can impact your fertility on a forward moving basis. And so she does mention in her book that there are physical and mental health issues happening at an alarming rate with many female athletes experiencing pressure to maintain a body that's impossible at their current physiological development point. And she also mentioned that female athletes experience three times the rate of stress fractures with 65% of them developing disordered eating habits. And that the 65% really freaked me out. Yeah, that's incredibly scary. And I feel like it is a bit that it is ignored if I think about my own journey with it. And I think it's interesting because in society, we're being told to be as small as we can just in general as women. And then you're an athlete. So you need to eat so much because you get, and even I was someone with stress fractures growing up because we, the female programs didn't have the same kind of thought and care put into them. And my dad works in football. So know that system pretty well. And then me going through netball and it was completely different in terms of the thought, the level of seriousness that is taken around like the growth and the development of the bodies playing those sports. So I think that's a really good start to touch on and something to be more cognizant of. And I hope that coming through it in this day and age, it's changed a lot. I think it's a good takeaway to just have to continue having conversations and normalize having conversations about your body, what happens to your body as you age, how it's normal to go through massive physiological changes and eat in a balanced way and have a healthy relationship with food, especially for young female athletes. So I hope that conversation continues overall, because I think 
you just need to hear about it from every angle. Yeah. Especially sport. No, for sure. I'm definitely going to read Good for a Girl. Yeah, I've got so many things to consume now. Yeah. <laughs> going to have to tell Seb to, you know, lay off the tours and so I have time to do this. And I guess as we sign off, so for those wondering what is going on, great question. We're making it up as we go along. The audio on this podcast is hopefully not as good as you're used to hearing because we don't have our mics. I say hopefully because it really provides good reason as to why we spent money on microphones originally. So we are doing this with the headphones in our various Airbnbs in Paris. We figured we were in the same time zone. We'll put out two more episodes. I am the, and then traveling for a few more months. And so we aim to bring you rhythmic, reliable podcast come the end of this year if you want that to happen please just reach out and say yes or even give us five stars on the spotify app or wherever you listen to your podcast yeah kelly i think we only want if you want to give us four just don't worry about it yeah don't feel the need to leave any stars (laughs) anything under four four and under where you know what it's a bit hard to do if you want to give us five it's a very simple process (laughs) give us five stars but we're very excited we very much miss doing this you'll see a lot more from us on like our socials especially linking out to things and giving our recommendations so should see a lot more movement from us which hopefully is welcome on all ends but we're always open to feedback Steph more than me but like (laughs) (laughs) I was like things you hate tell me about and go to Kelly for the things you love I I mean, we're always open to feedback or compliments. So, (laughs) (laughs) Mostly compliments. Kelly, I'll be seeing you later today. Good luck on your date. Oh, thank you. Good luck on your date with your husband. (laughs) Oh, yeah, I need to plan that. Good point. (laughs) Uh, Good chat. (laughs) Until next time, signing off. Lots of love, people. Bye, bye, bye.